You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We're in week six of seven in this series in the book of Colossians. We've got a controversial passage in front of us, and I'm on the maximum legal dose of codril, cold, and flu. So are you ready to go to work? Um, We don't have time for anything else, so insert AFL grand final reference here and moving along. If you uh, have that passage in front of you, you know the worst thing we can do as we come to God's word, uh, one of the worst things we can do is to take a passage, any passage, and uh, take it out of its context and make it our slave, make it do what we want it to do for us, for our own particular agenda or prejudice and so I want to avoid that at all costs every week. Uh, That's why we talk a lot about context, that's why we uh, every week try and ascertain as best as we can the um, original meaning of the author for the original audience and so I want to do a little bit of work this morning on that, uh, reframing for us the context of the letter uh, to the Colossians that this passage is a part of. This passage does not exist out in the ether somewhere in a vacuum. It's part of a letter that was designed to be read in its fullness uh, to a particular people at a particular time. And so let me just remind you that this um, book is all about the supremacy of Jesus over all things, that Jesus Christ is above all earthly powers. Uh, I'm going to read for you uh, a little summary that I think uh, these things always fail at some point, but is, is my best attempt at summarising the book so far. So in Colossians, Paul wants us to see Jesus as the supreme centre, that should be R-E, apologies, the supreme centre of all reality. To make all of life all about him so that we don't turn back to old ways of being and believing. Paul believes that if we truly see Jesus for who he is, King, Messiah, Lord over all creation, then it will do two things. It will enable us, empower us to make all of life all about him, right? To have him at the center of our universe. And in so doing, we will avoid the inevitable temptation to turn back to old ways of being and believing. That's what he was writing to the Colossians about in the first century, and that's why he's writing to us and speaking to us today. I want to reread for you the poem that we looked at in the second week of this series. It's it's one of the earliest pieces of Christian art that we have. It's a poem that Paul wrote to kind of Bridge the gap between what he knows about Jesus and his ability to communicate that glory. And so, like so many of us, he turns to art, he turns to poetry in order to paint a picture for us of who Jesus is. And this is what he says in in verse 15 to 18. I'll just read a little bit of it. He says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. You remember this? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things 
have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And by Him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. This is a profound expression of Paul's theology. Paul's theology of creation and new creation. That is that Paul believes that in Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, he has begun the new creation in our midst. He has brought a kingdom that is here amongst us and will come in its fullness when Jesus comes again to make all things right and new. And in the meantime, he's called us as people who have died with Christ and been raised with Christ to live new lives in a new creation. This image that Paul has of life under the lordship of Jesus is lofty, it's big, it's, it's glorious. And so he wants us to turn our attention to that reality it's not this imaginary fantasy world. This is the reality of life in the new creation. It hasn't come in its fullness yet. That won't happen until Jesus returns. But we, we do live in this kingdom that is coming to bear in our midst. And we do live under the active kingly rule of Jesus each and every day. That's why our mission is to make all of life all about him because all of life is all about him. So into that context, Paul has been calling us to live a certain way. He's been calling us to live lives that reflect that reality, the reality where Jesus is Lord over the new creation. And so last week we... we we talked about this fact that a huge part of living in this new creation under the Lordship of Jesus is to remember who we are. To remember our identity as creatures in that new creation, as children adopted by a heavenly Father, as servants of the Lord Jesus. That's who we are. Not, not some kind of promised future reality in heaven far away, but now, that's who we are now. And so he says in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 3, we looked at this last week, he says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's his picture of life in the new creation. We have died, we have been raised, just as Christ himself died and was raised, and now we are living a resurrection existence with Jesus as our resurrection Lord. So last week we talked generally about how to live as we are, as resurrected as people of the resurrection and the new creation. 
And, and today the focus is going to come even more in, uh, closer, narrower, into the household itself. How do we be who we are in the home? Wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters. How do we function as God's people in a new creation where Jesus is Lord? And before we take a look at, specifically at marriage in the new creation... I want to talk first about why this is such a problem for us. Why, why is this picture of marriage that Paul paints in this passage that Duku read for you earlier, why is this such a problem for us? And the problem is not just a modern phenomenon. It's not just a, a modern cultural issue. This is historical. This is primeval. This is part of us. This goes right back to the beginning. I mean, you can, we can look at some of the reasons why modern culture has a problem with Paul's image of marriage in this passage and elsewhere, but it's not a modern problem at all. This goes right back to the beginning. So I want to take us there, right back to Genesis chapter 3, right, 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 right back at the beginning, to the creation itself and the fall of mankind. So this is right after Adam and Eve rebel against God, turn against his lordship, reject that lordship and embrace the worship of themselves. This is what he says to Eve, to the woman as representative of all women, what he says to her. He says... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Amen, mums? Yeah, I've been there twice. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is the root of the problem. Going right back to the very roots of our existence. The outcome of Adam and Eve's wanton sin, their decision to follow the lead of a serpent rather than a good father, their decision to embrace self-rule rather than the beneficent rule of the Lord Jesus has these outcomes and they're devastating. And you just think about it, is this true of my experience in the world today? Here's, Here's the first thing. Eve is going to have a sinful desire bedded into her, right? Bred into her and all of her kind that will follow. She'll have a sinful desire to oppose Adam, to oppose him and to assert leadership over him. And in so doing, she is going to attempt to reverse God's plan for Adam's loving leadership of her. This comes with the territory for women and wives ever since this time. That is everyone. This sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's for Adam, he's, he's also going to abandon his God-given pre-fall Right? Good creation 
leading, guarding, caring for his wife. He's going to abandon those good responsibilities that God has given him. And instead, he's going to pursue his own sinful agenda, his own distorted desire to rule over Eve, to domineer her, to lord it over her. And so you have this recipe for disaster built in to our experience as husbands and wives. One of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion right back here in the beginning is is not only that the relationship between them and God is fractured, but that there's going to be an ongoing damaging conflict between them, between husband and wife in marriage. And it's going to be driven and motivated and fueled by this sinful behaviour of both, both parties in rebellion against the good God-given roles that he had given them from the beginning. And so you have this recipe for disaster. That's life under the rule of sin. That's what married life looks like under the rule of sin. A distorted sense of responsibility before God that ends in this perpetual battle for control and domination. That's life under the rule of sin. Let me read to you life under the rule of Jesus. This is what it looks like. Verse 18 to 19. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. That's life under the rule of Jesus. Now some of you say, that sounds like another curse. That just sounds like another version of the curse. Wives, submit to your husbands. I preached this message when one of my first ever sermons was preaching at my brother's wedding, preaching from Ephesians chapter 5, preaching about the goodness of God's plan for complementary roles in marriage. And it did not go over well. One lady came to me afterwards who, who uh, I knew as a member of the church and a good Christian lady, and she came to me. She was furious. I thought she was going to physically harm me. And I tried to chat, and I, just, I ultimately just said, I don't know, I just think this is what the Bible... Like, I was given the passage. I didn't choose it. I was just saying what I think the Bible said. And her response was, I think you need to get a new Bible. <laughs> Which, is, which sounds amusing, but that's, that's the issue, right? This is an issue of authority. Like, who is going to be the authority in our lives? Who is going to set the agenda, not only for our marriages, this is a small part of what the Bible tells us about how to live in the kingdom, in the new creation. The question is, do we accept the authority that the Bible has over us? That's the question. Now, I'm not saying there is a hard, 
um, prescriptive way that every couple needs to relate to one another in marriage, but we do have some fairly clear guidance here. In the Colossians passage that we're looking at, Paul is brief and to the point. It's helpful that there are other passages that fill this out a little bit for us. It doesn't make it any easier. But in Ephesians chapter 5, a lot of you know this passage. This is where Paul really expands on the point. So in, in, in chapter 5, verse 22 and following, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of the body, that is Christ of the church. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. (laughs) To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless in the same way. Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now for Paul, this vision of marriage is an active undoing of the curse. It's an active undoing of life under the curse, life under the rule of sin, life under the rule of the serpent. That life that inevitably leads to conflict and the disintegration of what God has joined together, Paul says, here's the remedy and, and he goes on in Ephesians 5, he, this is wild. He, goes, he says, you know, marriage, marriage exists to be like a living drama, a living gospel drama. He says, marriage, this is a mystery. He says, this is the mystery. He's going he's gonna to open the door and show you the mystery of marriage. He says, it exists to show us God's love for his people. Marriage exists to demonstrate in real life the love of Christ for his church. That's amazing. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. Man, this leadership role that evidently God has given to husbands is not one to be envied. It is a nail-pierced leadership. It is an active laying down, every day laying down of one's life for the sake of his bride, just like Jesus did. Paul says, this is the cure for the curse. This is what life looks like under the active kingly rule of Jesus in the home. Now, we can be critical of this picture and there are many ways to attack the vision that Paul has for marriage. And many people in modern culture have, both inside and outside the church, have made attacks on it. 
One thing to think about, though, is whether the vision, the modern vision for marriage, is any upgrade on the ancient one. It wouldn't appear to be working that well. Certainly the, the image of marriage that we have in pop culture is, is pretty pathetic. Like, if you just think about advertisements or movies or TV shows, basically the, the, the man is seen as a bumbling fool who couldn't lay down his life for anyone, let alone like, tie his shoes. The, the wife is seen as, uh, by the husband as being anything but what he wants her to be, often leading to his desire to upgrade her in certain ways, either upgrade the current model or move on to another one. You know, this is the popular vision we have, and it's actually a perfect representation of life under the curse. And so Paul's words in Colossians are are corrective to that, both the the life under the curse from the beginning and the popular vision of marriage that we have today. That's why he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That is, this is what, this is the the good, nourishing, life-giving plan that God has had for you from the beginning, broken and fractured by sin, and husbands, you need to love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. That is, don't, don't be constantly thinking, I wish they were something that they're not. Don't be constantly looking over the fence and thinking, I wish that she was more like that one. Don't become embittered towards them. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, it's interesting that in this passage, the one that Duku read for you and the one that we're going to work through, There's this emphatic point that Paul's making over again. We'll come back to it at the end. But he says seven times in nine verses, which is a lot. He says, in the Lord, or some derivative of in the Lord. And and so the, the main thing we need to keep in mind is that all of this teaching needs to be filtered through a a lens of the lens of Jesus' teaching, of Jesus' life. So easily we can take these verses, like I said at the beginning, and make them our slaves, make them do what we want them to do. And I won't deny that that has led to an enormous amount of damage done in the name of obeying God's word. That's why Paul can see that 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 could be a potential disaster. And so he keeps saying, in the Lord, in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. All of this needs to be filtered through the lens of the lordship, the good and loving lordship of Jesus. So in the new creation where Jesus is Lord, wives are blessed. They're blessed. They're nourished. They're made more alive as they submit to the Christ-like self-sacrificial, nail-pierced leadership of their husbands. Every negative image you have in your mind for the submission of a wife to her husband, right? That idea that she's chained to the oven and that she's just has to do what he wants, whatever he wants, and he comes in and lords it over her. Every negative image we have attached to that word submit or submission looks nothing like 
the image that Paul paints for us in Colossians and Ephesians and elsewhere. Titus, Peter's words in 1 Peter. That image simply cannot exist where a husband is loving his, lo- his wife like Christ loved the church, right? That can never happen. She can never be beaten down. She can never be abused in any way. If you're married to Jesus, that kind of life is impossible. And so rather coming to the Bible and underlining submit or maybe rubbing it out or maybe saying you need to get a different Bible, we need to read the whole thing together. And when it's put together, it really is beautiful. i got to tell you, in my limited experience, I've never met a woman, a wife, who is being loved by a Christ-like leader who begrudged him his leadership. Does that make sense? You meet a wife who's being loved by someone who loves her like Christ loved the church and you will meet a woman full of life, full of gratitude to God for the gift of marriage. I think it's instructive, especially in that Ephesians 5 passage that Paul says about three times more to the husband than he does to the wife. There is a heavy burden on you, men, if you're going to love your wife like Christ loved the church. I wish there was another way, let me tell you. Well, that took a long time. Hey, let's, let's just get into the rest of this passage. And we'll, I just want to be real quick, okay? We, don't, we really don't have time to go into a whole sermon on parenting and slavery and uh, employment. And so we're just going to have to move pretty quick. Here, let me say a couple of things about the, the rest of this. In, in verse 20 to 21, Paul addresses children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything. Amen, kids? (laughs) Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't be discouraged. Let me say something about this that should be self-evident and absolutely isn't because of the context of our culture. Something really striking, if you're in Colossae in the first century and you receive this letter, something really striking is that Paul actually addresses wives, children and slaves as people, like as real people. In, this, in, the, in the Roman culture that these people are living in, that they've grown up in, right? That culture, men have the power of life and death over women, children and slaves. They just do. That's just the way of things. In the Greek philosophy that, that ruled this kind of time, the Stoic philosophy was that just, it was kind of a natural theology. The way the world is is the way it should be. Men are stronger than women and children and slaves. Therefore, they should rule women, children and slaves. And that was very much the way of things. Children weren't people. They were kind of potential people if they were boys, but 
irrespective of that, boys or girls, they were things. They were things to be moved, they were pieces to be moved around the board, as were women, as were slaves. This idea that Paul actually addresses these people as people was earth-shattering. So he addresses children as if they're actual people, just like Jesus did. Remember, little children used to come to Jesus. The disciples, only just acting out of their cultural context, tried to shoo them away like sheep, right? Like cattle, like, like things. Just get, get go, seen and not heard. That's your role. Jesus says, no, 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 let them come. They're real people. They're made in the image and likeness of God. Paul knows that, and so he addresses them directly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, right? Again, this construction by God to undo the curse, the curse which would pit children against parents and parents against children, would be undone as children joyfully obey the loving leadership of their parents. It's the same thing, the same pattern. And here's here's what's true just from that verse. Children need discipline. And so do parents. Both of those things are true. Children need discipline. This might be shocking for us in the modern world. Like children need to be told no. Children need to be given boundaries. It's good for them. It helps them flourish. Children need discipline and so do parents. Parents need discipline to know not to exasperate their children, not to discourage their children. He addresses fathers there. It can actually apply to both parents. Do not exasperate your children. Don't constantly push them down. That was the culture that the Colossians lived in, pushing down, pushing down wives, pushing down children, pushing down slaves, keeping them in check. Paul says, don't do that. You're going to discourage them. You don't want to discourage them. You want them to be able to live a full and flourishing life, the kind of life that God has for them in his good new creation. The kind of household where Jesus is Lord is the kind of household where children flourish under the discipline of their loving parents. And then he moves on and, and, and as if he hadn't broken enough taboos addressing women as real people and then even children as real people, he goes on to address slaves, not as cattle, but as people. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. Now, as I said, we don't have time to go into the whole issue of slavery it's it's enough to say briefly that this slavery in the first century 
does not bear much of a resemblance to the modern slave trade that we think of. People from Africa being kidnapped and taken to the new world and made to serve under masters. This is not the same thing. If Paul would have had had written and said, all slaves should be set free immediately, the entire civilization would come to a crumbling halt. Quite apart from the fact that a lot of people depended on their enslavement to feed their family. In many cases, when a slave was freed, he opted to stay in enslavement for the sake of providing for his own family. All I'm saying is, let's not be too quick just to say, well, slavery is an evil and Paul endorsed it, so therefore we're going to throw the whole thing out. That's not the case. And it requires a lot more historical knowledge, which most of us just do not have and are not interested in and a whole lot more nuance for the culture of the time. The point is, and it applies to all of us who are employed by someone, the, 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 the point that he wants to make to us is that we ought to work as if Jesus is Lord. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Remember, the whole framework of this letter is, if Jesus is supreme over all things, how now shall we live? If you're a slave or someone who is employed, you might like to use the word slave sometimes, and Jesus is Lord, how are you called to live and work? Paul says, do it from the heart. Do it for the Lord. Don't work as a people pleaser. Understand that ultimately that employer or that master is not your master, Jesus is. And then he says in that last verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, He says, and directly addresses masters. Again, men who had the power of life and death over their slaves. He says, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. And that is the governing verse for all of these areas that we've been talking about. How now shall you live in your marriage, in your parenting, in your employment, you should live knowing that you have a master in heaven and that should change everything. You do not exist to serve yourself. You exist to serve him and that should colour every relationship that you have. Remember the seven times in these nine verses, in the Lord. We need to keep coming back to God's word. We need to keep coming back to the character of the Lord Jesus. We need to keep coming back to the fact that he is Lord over us, that he is the creator of the new creation in which we live and move and have our being. And therefore we constantly have to check our own biases and prejudices and filters against him against him and his word. So that's what I want to leave us with this morning. Rather than giving you a hard and fast prescription for how you need to order your marriage, your parenting, your employment, all I want to say is, along with Paul, keep coming back to God's will revealed in God's word. 
keep coming back to it. If you're here this morning and all of this is grating on you like nothing you've ever experienced and you just want to get up and leave, keep coming back to God's Word. It is good. It is a light for our feet. We need to accept the authority it has over us and then work out together as a community how we are to live this out. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. I want to pray for us though. So let's bow our heads together under the Lordship of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you love him, if you're here this morning and you have died and been raised with him, If you're here this morning living as citizens in a kingdom where he is Lord, if you're here this morning a creature of the new creation, then please join with me as we pray for God's blessing 